go. Hey, guys, this is uh, God's Sad for the Sad Truth. One of the beautiful things about my public engagement is that my world intersects once in a while with folks that otherwise I might not have met. Today, I've got David Bedil, who is a British comedian, presenter, screenwriter, and author. I first became aware of David when I read an article, I can't remember in which platform, where he was talking about how one can be uh, an atheist and Jewish, which resonated with me. And that sent us off and on several exchanges. And here you are. Welcome, David. Hi, Gad. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Maybe you want to tell people uh, I'm doing you well might too, be... but, but in a slightly weird way. Uh, so I had a medical procedure this morning, not a serious one. I basically had a stomach ache and uh, I needed someone to put a, you know, a camera down my stomach to find out what's going on. Nothing bad is going on. But to do that, because I'm essentially not very male, like they got the option of like just having the tube down my stomach or with sedation. I said, give me the sedation. So I am chocker with fentanyl at the moment. And I, you know, I don't want to promote fentanyl, especially not in North America, but it's the moment, the moment I'm quite enjoying it. Okay. Well, for the, for the British, well, I'm glad that it's nothing serious. That's wonderful. We're all, we're at, by the way, we're roughly the same age when I went and did a, well, a deep dive. It's not much of a deep dive, but I went onto your Wikipedia page. You're about five months older than me. You're born in May 1964, and I'm born in October 1964. And so in Arabic, you say, meaning, may we reach 100 together. Right. May we do that. That would be great. That's yeah. When you look at me, do you think we're the same age? Do you think we look the same age? Because I have a notion, which is actually in my book, The God Desire, uh, that at heart, everyone feels about 12. That the adulthood, we're all winging adulthood. It's essentially a sham. Uh, and when we see ourselves looking old, we think, who's that? Um, so you are younger than me, uh, but I'm having to process that, even though I know I look old too. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> you are right that we always feel younger than we really are. I remember a very poignant story where my dad, this is probably 25 years ago, so he's now... 93 so he would have been you know what sorry he's still alive alive, thank god he's still alive as is my mother uh and so he we were sitting watching tv and a guy comes uh on television who looked let's say 25 years younger than he was at that point and he looks at the guy on tv and he goes do i look this old dad (laughs) i said dad you look about 30 years older and that (laughs) shocked his world he's like Really? I look older than that guy? I said, the guy is like, I mean, literally three decades younger than you. And so I think you're right. We've got this false perception of how old we are. Yeah, we do. I actually have, I don't know if it'll work uh, on a Canadian, uh, but because maybe this is just a British thing, but I know how you can tell what your soul, the age of your soul, by the way, obviously I don't believe in a soul, but that's aside, what your soul is. And there used to be a show in Britain that every year it would change its name. It was a film review show. And when I was growing up, it was film, I'm going to say it, like 82, right? So if you take when I was born, 1964, to then, that's clearly what I feel inside because if you say film to me and I choose a year for what that show should be, it's kind of 82, right? (laughs) Uh, Which makes me, I can't do the maths quickly, but actually that makes me about 16, right, Uh, in in my soul. So if you had to choose a, a TV show called film, what would be the year? Oh, that's a good question. Probably Cheers. Uh, do, you, do you remember the, the the comedy show Cheers? Of course. Yeah. yeah. And so, that, so that's how you feel that should be on TV. 
when you turn on the TV? Well, you know why? Because it really captured my formative years. I think it started in 82 when I was just finishing high school. And then it went off air by the time I was well into my PhD. And so, so, you know, this is a show that took me from my high school days all through my education. And I remember I had a a really sad kind of nostalgic state that this was now over. You know, you... You become attached to these characters. So that's probably the most iconic show that I can uh, think of. Okay. So that does put you in the in a coming of age time. In in, in you know, if we if what you think of first off instinctively when you watch when you think of TV, that is what I'm saying is what the age the age you are really in, in your heart. Got you. Speaking of television series and so on, my wife and I this is our second crack at doing it. And boy, I'm glad that we went back to it. About a few years ago, we started watching Mad Men. Have you, have you watched I, that series? I watched uh, about half of the first series. <laughs> and I am, uh, I did not like it. I actually really liked it. Uh, but something took me away from it. I think it was just before the idea of really long-form TV was something I'd accepted. Uh, because like I grew up, uh, and in Britain particularly, a TV series is like six episodes. And then maybe there's another one a year later, that's six episodes. The idea of committing three months a year of your life to watching TV, that took me a while to get my head around. Now I'm really into it, and I watched Breaking Bad recently and thought it was like the greatest thing ever made. Uh, right. So I need to go back to watch Mad Men, which is like... I, I really cool. highly recommend it. So Breaking Bad is also one of my favorite, and I came to it late, but a few years ago. So... Mad Men appeals to me. I mean, sort of to our earlier discussion about how old you are. The cinema, well, first of all, I I study psychology of decision-making and evolutionary psychology and consumer psychology. So all the psychology of advertising that is the, you know, the central running theme through the show. Mad Men, of course, is Madison Avenue, guys who work on Madison Avenue. But the cinematography, the icons, the set, so appeals to me because it, it takes me back to when I was a kid growing up in in Lebanon. So I, I was born in Lebanon and grew up there till the age of 11. We left in 1975, the first year of the Civil War. And I keep my fingers crossed that I will see a Pan Am logo because somehow those Pan Am logos are so attractive to me. Do you have such a brand that no longer exists that is very evocative of your childhood? Yeah, I mean, many. I mean, loads of things there. Uh... <laughs> there was something in Britain. It, I think it still exists, uh, but I don't think of it as it is now, which was R. White's Lemonade. Uh, and it's partly because there was an advert that went with R. White's Lemonade, which for no reason at all was a guy, because you don't have to hide drinking lemonade, but he, he used to tiptoe down the stairs uh, like at night and he used to sing a song about being a secret lemonade drinker. And there was an urban myth that that was Elvis Costello's dad. I remember that, that in Britain. And whenever I think of R. White's Lemonade, I think of that guy and I think of me very young. Can I ask you a question about Please. Mad Men and consumer psychology? I mean, we, we have to get on to talking about Jewish atheism and stuff. But I I got to ask you a question, which is there's one scene uh, in the first episode, I think, of Mad Men that I've always thought is immensely evocative of something, uh, which is a shift in understanding to do with how consumer how advertising work, but also how um, mass psychology works, which is that scene where, is it Lucky Strike, where the cigarette company are going to Dan Draper and they're saying, we can't basically say cigarettes are good. We can't do that anymore. We've been told legally. 
And uh, and he's just talking to them and, and asking about the cigarettes. And they say, how do you make them? And you make them like this and you do that. And you toast them and blah, blah, blah. And then he says, what? And he says, well, you do this and you toast them. And then he just writes down, Lucky Strike, it's toasted. That's right. And I... that becomes the slogan. And I remember watching the thing, that is so clever. Because the idea of lateral thinking to advertise something feels to me like a very modern concept. And right. sometimes you see that on a historical drama. You see modernity happening. And that's what I, re I remember thinking about that. Yeah, no, that, that it's funny because I just, so we re restarted watching it again. And yesterday we watched exactly the episode that okay. you just mentioned. And as right. I was watching it, I turned to my wife. I said, you know what? I don't think I need to lecture anymore. I'm just going to play those, those, those episodes and yeah. then just interject once in a while. Uh, I don't know if you remember the other scene where they talked about, you know, this uh, a doctor, I'm guessing a PhD, comes in and she shares a report with him about, you know, some of the positioning that they must do. And he takes the report and he throws it in the garbage. And I'm no, thinking, don't you don't remember that? And she talks about the death wish, uh, death wish of Freud and so on. And so it's so up my alley. I mean, one of the things that I yeah. love about advertising when I lecture to my students is that it really is part art, part science. There are yeah. psychological principles that are predictable that we could apply. When is it appropriate to use fear-based advertising? When should you use humor? How many times can you show a humorous ad before people get tired of it? So there are absolutely clear scientific principles that we could use in designing optimal advertising copy. But mm. there's also an art part. So that scene that you talked about where it mm. just came to him, he wasn't even prepared to do a pitch. And yet yeah. he and then suddenly everybody's happy. Yeah, that didn't come from, you know, science 101. It just came organically from his brain. That's what I love about advertising. Yeah, no, that is really interesting. It's really interesting as well, because, of course, all art at some level is also advertising because, uh, you know, except in very, very kind of like Puritan uh, ideas of art, the artist does want their art to be seen, the art, you know, to sell tickets. You know, uh, I went and saw a production of a Tom Stoppard play the other day, uh, which would been redone, and it's a very difficult play, but they still want to sell tickets. Uh, and they still uh, have things in the play that are designed to just like get people to come get bums on seats, right? Yeah. Uh, and the, at no point, really, is there an artwork that isn't at some level advertising. Well, I actually wrote an article, I think, it, I can't remember exactly when, maybe seven, eight years ago. I, I used to write often in a Psychology Today column, which I haven't been doing most recently. And I titled the, the article, uh, Life is Marketing and Marketing is Life. So hmm. to your point, I was arguing that everything is marketing, right? When we go to the mating market, where in this case, I am the product and I'm advertising myself. In the labor market, I'm advertising myself. Within a group, at a cocktail party, I'm advertising my belief system so that hopefully other people will like me. So everything beyond just selling Coca-Cola and uh, Levi's jeans, everything is marketing. So when some people come at me and say oh but you know you're 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 at a business school you study consumer behavior that's not serious i say nothing could be more serious i mean short of breathing we are a consumatory animal so your yeah. point is well, well that's, taken. that's correct that's absolutely correct shall i just because we started off talking about it, but shall i talk a bit about the jewish atheism thing of course uh, so let me just put up this uh so this is the book where you develop that whole thesis the god desire yeah. the other book that was sent to me jews don't count and i also have access to your documentary based on that book uh, i haven't read yet i can't put it up because you sent it as a pdf file but so okay, we've got... i can i can if it's please do good. 
this is Jews don't count. Jews uh, don't count, and the God desire you take it wherever you want to go. Well, Jews don't count. I can start with this actually because it relate they relate to each other. <laughs> Jews don't count is a bigger deal, uh, certainly in terms of sales uh, and and in terms of its impact on the conversation around anti-Semitism than the God desire, which is a more kind of philosophical work really and doesn't have a sort of social purpose in quite the same way uh but but they relate to each other because one of the key ideas in jews don't count which is a book about how anti-semitism uh has not received the same attention the same concern the same level of like protectiveness if you like that pro progressives would extend to other minorities and why that is uh and to do with the sort of deeply embedded notions of jews and power and uh, how jews don't really suffer from any kind of trauma or whatever is it all in jews don't count but part of that a corner of it which was actually very important turned out to be more important than i realized is my point is that uh anti-semitism is racism it's racism it's not what people think it is people tend to think it's religious intolerance particularly in america i've noticed where racism is very ring fenced for people of color less so in britain uh, and my point about it, the way i prove anti-semitism is racism which i can do very easily is i am an atheist uh, but that would get me no passes at all out of Auschwitz. And indeed, my great uncle Arno, who was not a religious Jew, he was totally secular, died in the Warsaw Ghetto. Many other uh, of my family who were mainly non-observant Jews died in the Holocaust. And in America now, uh, white supremacists marching and chanting, the Jews will not replace us. They won't. Uh, they wouldn't ask me if I keep kosher before they set light to my house. And so religion is kind of irrelevant uh to the to the racist and that's quite an important corner of that book uh because i think people like to mark down anti-semitism as basically it's just about religion and religion is not as important as racism right so that led to uh me wanting to sort of explain a bit more in this book in the god desire what a jewish atheist means uh and part of it was trying to express something quite complicated about how you can not believe in god as a supernatural being but particularly if you're from a minority with a long history of persecution, I think that's sort of part of it, is you are moved, you know, in ways that are nothing to do with that belief by tradition and defiance and survival. I actually, in the book, talk about um, a friend of mine who tragically lost his son at a very young age, who is also an atheist and who sings Kaddish. Uh, Yit Gadalvi, Yit Gadash, at his funeral and being intensely moved by that. And I'm not moved by the meaning of the words. I'm moved by the sonics of the word, because the sonics of the Hebrew plug into sort of centuries and centuries of what I think being a Jew means, which is actually very little, I think, to do with an actual imagination, which I think Christians do have uh, of a sort of person or version of a person or a, a godlike being that they are in a relationship with. I'm not sure you know being jewish is about that and so the book is that's partly the book uh why the book happened it's also a, a extension from that of my own feeling that atheism as i understand it as i've read many books about it tends to be very very dismissive of religion and i'm not very dismissive of religion i completely stone cold don't believe in god uh and uh, it's not, i don't just don't believe in god i sort of absolutely know there is no god but I think that uh, as a Jew and as a Jew who understands the storytelling of what it means to be a Jew and how that culture has sort of, you know, absolutely at the bedrock of my being, I think that a lot of the sort of what I would call white Christian men of the new atheists don't understand how religion teaches what, us what it means to be human.
And also in my particular case, my deep desire, which is where we get to the God desire to believe in God. And this is a slightly depressive position, but I believe it to be the real one informs me that there is no God. Right. Because I believe that I believe that that exists in the deep recesses of most humans or in a mass cultural way as well. There's a mass psychological wish for there to be more meaning in life, for there to be life after death, for us to see our loved ones again, all sorts of things that we would like and a hardwired need to worship. And all of that is serviced by a God. So we have created that thing in many different forms in order to surface that deep desire sometimes mainly that we're not aware of. I mean, sometimes we're aware of it, but a lot of time we're not aware of it. And my point is, I am an atheist who absolutely acknowledges that desire yeah. in himself. And is that's it... what doesn't happen in The God Delusion, uh, I... or indeed in Bertrand Russell's books. It, that's just dismissed as obviously nonsense. And why Why would... That comes back to the childish thing in a way. It's like you, only a child, only a baby would be at all... Uh, moved or interested in the idea of this fairy tale. And I think I say at one point that to dismiss religion as fairy tales is to not understand how it, you shouldn't dismiss fairy tales as fairy tales because legends of how we live and how we create ourselves are key to understanding what it means to be human. Sorry, that was a very long answer. <laughs> well, but your, 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 your thesis resonates uh, very much with me because you may or may not know I mean, I'm very wedded to my Jewish identity. We're Lebanese Jews. I do know uh, that, yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, I too am not much of a believer in that, I, you know, I don't worry that we need to set the candles because Chabad said, said it, it should be at 421. And if I do it at 422, I'm a bad Jew. And so, but yet, just like you, I understand that we have a shared history. We're part of a people. Uh, I, I understand that. And I mean, if you think that the way that you guys pray in Hebrew, you know, might resonate with you. Try to do it when you're Arabic speakers. I mean, it's it's taken me back to you know thousands of years ago. So the type the type of cadence of how we pray. No disrespect to my uh, Ashkenazi brothers, but you really have to sit in a Syrian or a Lebanese or an Egyptian or an Iraqi or a Yemeni to to maybe even get more of that. Uh, you know, sense of awe of shared history. I, I, I'm really I'm really interested in that. Because I, I feel it, I, I feel, I think I say in the book when I'm listening to that, that I feel the echo of centuries of tradition and suffering and defiance. And I do. I think I quote also Simon Sharma, the historian, talks about when Jews were exiled from Spain. What would you hear as they were leaving the ports of Spain? The Shema. Yeah. Uh, and if you hear the Shema, you're going to be moved by the Shema or the, the idea of it, whether or not you believe that a God is listening. Uh, and I think as an Ashkenazi, I, I I think you're right. I think I'm sure the music uh, would be somehow more emotive if I was <laughs> able to tune in to what it would be like for a Lebanese a Jew or a Syrian Jew or whatever. But I would like to think that there's a meeting place anyway. That, sure, that of course. We, we are all Jews. Yes. We've all heard that music at some point in our, you Indeed. know, in our inner souls. I'm using all these words that only religion can give you that I actually you know, <laughs> don't believe in these things, but you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. But so I'm going to build on your argument that there is a, a functional value to being religious. And, and I'm going to come at it from the perspective of uh, an ev how an evolutionist would argue. So you, this may, I think maybe interest you because you probably haven't attacked it from that angle. Evolutionists actually offer 
evolutionary-based arguments for why religion exists. So there's what's called the adaptation argument. So this is where you have to argue that there is a unique, in this case, survival advantage to religiosity. And so, for example, David Sloan Wilson, who is a evolutionary biologist, and I think he recently retired at uh, State University of New York at Binghamton, who's, he's, he, we know each other well. He wrote a book uh, now maybe 20 years ago called Darwin's Cathedral, where he uses a group selectionist argument to argue that if you take two groups, one of which scores high on religiosity, the other one which doesn't, well, the group that is religious is going to have a survival advantage because there are very earthly mechanisms that are conferred to the group that's religious, greater mm. communal communality, greater cohesion, greater demarcation between in-group and out-group members, greater reciprocity relationships within in-group members. So there are real earthly benefits that are reaped by those who are religious. So that's the adaptation argument. Then there is an opposing argument that argues that religion, from an evolutionary perspective, is an exaptation. An exaptation is, a, is when you're piggybacking on an evolutionary mechanism. So for example, our skeletal system is white, but that color is not itself adaptive. It is just the path dependent thing that came up because other things have happened. And so yeah. in, from that perspective, religion is piggybacking on cognitive systems that evolve for other purposes. So for example, our ability to see the world as blue team, red team, us versus them, coalitional thinking. Well, certainly the Abrahamic religions are very good at using that neuronal system, right? There are the Jews and the Goys. There are the believers and the Kufar in Islam. Yeah. There is those who are going to Jesus for eternity and the rest of us who are going to be damned in hell. And so mm -hmm. there are very clear science-based, evolutionary-based arguments that support your claim that really the default value is to believe. Yeah. Uh, so I don't in the book really go into those evolution arguments. I'm not I mean, <coughs> I am aware of them, although not in the way that you are. <laughs> the way I tend to write these books, because I come from stand up, uh, is just essentially out of my head uh, with not a lot of sort of data and proper academic research. And thus they are short and uh, anecdotal. And that seems to be one of the reasons that they do OK. Uh, but but I I talk about identity. That's it's not a word you use, but I think it's important in what you're talking about. In the uh, religion confers a, a whole host of advantages. Some of them are obvious social advantages, which would have a Darwinian, if you want to look at it in those terms, advantage. Obviously, because it will create a tribal cohesion to share the same identity. And religion uh, gives you a host of things of which you could basket them as identity so i would say sort of meaning is one of those uh, and another one which is very very live now because of social media uh, is a way in which you can project your identity to those around you uh, religion is able to do that because religion has meetings in it, it has colors it has things you can wear it has prayers you can say that only your your people say but what that allows you to do is say, I am a important and supportive member of the tribe. Now, what is very interesting, and you touched on it just then, is that humans seem to be unable to project an identity without it being in opposition. It seems that the strengthening of identity, which is very important to human beings, they should feel, I am this, I am a Catholic, 
or whether it be, you know, I am an, uh, an anti-vaxxer now or whether it be whatever it is, uh, I am woke, wh whatever it is. Uh, now, it, it seems impossible to do that in and of itself. The way you have to build it, and social media has created an incredibly dysfunctional ability to do that, is by hating uh, on the ones who are not you, by creating a fan an idea of the ones who are not you and being angry with them and then hopefully... Again, social media allows for this, but it's a very religious idea, bringing the people with you who are part of the tribe in order to, you know, mob hate on them and then get mob hate back. And this just reinforces your identity. And it feels to me that the performative nature of all that is all there in religion, because religion has always had Catholics hating Protestants uh, or Jews and Philistines or whatever it might be. It seems that the binary nature of identity always involves who is my opposite how can I build, or how can the tribe, if you, if you want to be more Darwinian about it, how can the tribe reinforce its identity by having this negative version of itself? Right. Well, and re religion does another incredible thing. I mean, to your point. So take, for example, Islam. In Islam, the Islamic nation is called the Ummah, right? Well, what that does is now removes otherwise immutable characteristics that would otherwise put us in different tribes. It no longer matter, matters whether I'm black or white, or white or whether I am from Morocco or Malaysia. What matters now is we are united in the fact that we are part of the Ummah. So it becomes a supra mechanism by which we can erase all those other characteristics and therefore we belong to the same group. It's a, it's a brilliant memeplex to use uh, Daniel Dennett's term. Memeplex is not a word I know. Well, what, what? So memeplex is basically a collection of memes. So memes is a term, of course, that you probably know from uh, Richard Dawkins in, yeah. the, in his book, The Selfish Gene. So I Daniel do. Dennett, I think he's the originator of the term, argued that something like religion is a memeplex. I think the, the, the term comes. So, for example, when you talk about a cineplex, it's a multiplicity of of, of movie theaters in one place. So a memeplex is a coherent narrative made up of distinct memes making up a memeplex. Okay, because I think as far as I remember in The God Delusion, what, what Dawkins actually does is use the word meme to draw a parallel, which I don't completely agree with, with genes. Uh, so in the because he's such a Darwinist, he can't understand the spread of religion uh, because it doesn't have a biological basis and it seems to have no obvious evolutionary basis. And so he talks about uh, the spreading of memes exactly as if they were genes. And I don't think it works entirely like that. And actually, one thing that I think speaks to that is what you've just said about the Ummah. Um, is also true of the way that Christianity spreads because Christianity is an evangelical religion. And as an evangelical religion, obviously it was able to colonize a lot of the world. Judaism is odd because Judaism is not a proselytizing religion. Yeah. It's really fucking hard to become a Jew. From a, from a marketing perspective, Judaism yeah. sucks. It completely sucks. And actually, I talk about this in the book. Uh, I got uh, a, a, quite a bad review from the Jewish Chronicle, a newspaper that I sometimes write for. But hey, when his you know, profit is not without honor, save in his own country, uh, because uh, the reviewer felt that I was someone who liked Christianity more. And that was a misunderstanding of the book because I don't like or dislike any religion particularly. But I was saying Christianity is much more successful which it obviously is in terms of size. And that's not just to do with the fact that it's an evangelical religion. That's to do with the fact that I think that I actually use the example of Hollywood screenwriting 
that if you read a book called Save the Cat, uh, which is a book on how if you wanted to do a formulaic Hollywood story, you might notice that your hero uh, should be empathetic. So that's number one where Christianity has done better than Jews because they've created a God who is a man, right, rather than a formless being. So empathy's there straight away. Then it might tell you have that character, your hero, be of lowly stock because you want to feel that he is an underdog and he's got to, a lot of obstacles to overcome. Then you might say, get, make him do good things early on in the film. Make him do various good things, uh, small good things that are slowly building to more and more good things. And then at the end of the movie, what you really want is a big sacrifice. This is all in Save the Cat. In Act 3, you want a huge sacrifice uh, that this person does so that you really feel that this person has you know, gone on the journey towards your love right? Your love as a character and engagement. And the, turns out the New Testament had all those beats down, you know, 2,000 years early. And that, I think, is why you see the spread of that religion. Uh, but it's interesting that Jews, who somehow or other have survived, I do think I actually wrote a piece very recently about this, about Jews' incredible ability to survive, because it makes no sense, right? Jews are a very small religion. They've been mainly genocided over many, many centuries, uh, or ghettoized, or exiled, or whatever. They don't encourage people who are not born Jewish to join them. And yet, somewhere or other, a small amount, 15 million of us, still exist. Uh, and so, given that I'm an atheist, and don't think this is because we are Hashem's chosen people... I'm somewhat mystified as to why we've managed to do that. Uh, but yeah, but some religions are memeplex, did you call it? Memeplex, are, are, yeah. are very memeplex. Ju Ju Judaism is not. Right, no, that, that's it, a good it point. It doesn't spread itself in that way. Well, you, you were just you know talking about the, the structure, the narrative of Christianity, which kind of leads me to uh, another Point that's not necessarily religious, but that I think will resonate with you. So you're you're obviously a writer. You also write fiction. You're a screenwriter. So there is a and I know that you pursued a PhD but never finished it. Maybe we want to talk about what that you should go back and finish that PhD. You really my grandmother who is long dead. That was all she wanted. My grandmother Otti Fabian, who was a refugee from Nazism. My on my mother's side, they were refugees. My mum was actually born in Nazi Germany. Uh, when I was uh, 21, uh, I didn't have enough money to be a comedian. Uh, and at that time, which is now a, an amazing idea, the government in Britain would give you money to uh, be a student and even to be a PhD student. You could get a grant really easily. Uh, and so I got a grant and I was at London University doing a PhD in Victorian sexuality and literature was what it was. Um, and she, although I don't think she particularly knew what I was doing, but she just loved the idea of me being Dr. Badil at the end of it. And then she was just pissed off. It didn't really matter that I was on TV. Uh, I'm going to speak on behalf of your grandmother. You ready? Please do. Yeah. Okay. So two stories that I mentioned, forgive plugging my own book in this book right here. Yeah. The bad that. truth about happiness. I talk about towards the end of the, the book about the psychology of regret and how oftentimes the things that we regret, we could actually still affect change. And you know, it's too late for me to be a, a a basketball player. I'm too old, too short, and not good enough to be a basketball player. But yeah. so here are two stories that are going to resonate with uh, with you regarding your incompleted PhD. Story one, I think his name is Dagobert Bro. He was a guy who left uh, just as the Nazis were coming into power. Jewish guy moved to Montreal, became a businessman, never pursued 
his uh, lifelong dream of you know going to university. Then when he finished his career, he retired. He was in his 60s. He said, well, you know what? Now I've got some time. Why don't I go back and do my undergraduate in his 60s? He completes his undergrad. And he says, well, you know, I'm, I'm young. I'm still healthy. In his 70s, he begins his master's. Fast forward at the age of 92, the this is at my university where, where I'm a professor. And it used to be called the Thursday Report, which was the, the weekly newspaper of the university. I think the title on the front page was finally a doctor at 92. And so right. he, he obtained his PhD at 92. Story two, Memfred Steiner, who is a gentleman who, who came on my show about a year and a half ago, got his MD degree in 1955, David, and mm -hmm. then picked up a PhD in biochemistry in 1967 as part of his training in hematology. But his main love had always been physics. But his parents right. had said, what is this physics stuff? This is not serious stuff. D have a serious profession, G do something practical, become a physician. So after he retired from medicine, after a long illustrious career as a hematologist, he went back pursued physics. And at the age of 89, a year and a half ago, I think, got his PhD and came on my show. So so based on those two stories, you're still a spring chicken. So there's no reason for you not to go back and do your PhD. Okay, so you're right. Um, I actually wrote like 90% of it, uh, which is kind of weird, uh, considering that you would think just finish it, David, because uh, I could do, I could just finish it and just submit it. Uh, and I might, and I'll take your advice, but there is a couple of reasons why not. Number one, when I've read it now, and I wrote a lot of it in the 80s, it's academically massively out of date in terms of the way that literary theory and stuff. It's very, you know, infected by sort of Foucault and ideas about literary theory that were very prominent in the 80s. It's kind of post-structuralist, and I'm not bothered about all that stuff anymore. Uh, although it's it's mainly historicist. It's mainly looks at the Victorian in terms of, uh, like, how the history of Victorian thought uh, is there in all in all the literature but the other thing is physics <laughs> which is so my dad uh was a working class guy uh and not a refugee although uh, a few generations back they were fleeing from russian uh pogroms and obviously uh in fact there's a story which i don't know if it's true or not uh but that my great great grandfather smuggled himself on a wood on a timber ship from latvia from running away from russians he was on his way to New York, uh, and because he didn't speak any English, he just got off at the first stop, which was Swansea in Wales, which is where, which is where my dad's from. I actually wondered why why your dad was from Swansea. I couldn't, so now I got yeah. the story. Yeah, so, but presumably my great-great-grandfather, 10 years down the line, spoke enough English or Welsh to say, where is the Statue of Liberty? And they said, no, it's a long way over there. You got off the boat too early. Uh, but my dad got out of poverty by studying chemistry. Uh, and became a, you know, he ended up, actually he taught in New York for a bit in upstate New York in Rosselaer Polytechnic Institute, which is in Troy, you know, upstate New York, that's where I was born. Uh, but then he came back to Britain and he had a job in science for quite a long time before he was made redundant. And when I was a kid, I realised that was not in my gift to do that, those subjects. I was good at words and English, but my dad, in a, in a way that is not good parenting, like now this is like definitely not good parenting. When I eventually told him I don't want to do science subjects, he said, well, that's a waste of a brain, right? Uh, as I say, not what you would tell kids now. But the interesting thing about it is he's dead now. And I spend all my time reading popular. I can't do the maths to do it properly, but I read popular physics books all the time and I wrote a play 
uh, called God's Dice, uh, which is a play uh, trying to match up religion and physics. It's actually a play about um, a woman who appears in a lecturer's room one day, a young woman, uh, and she's a Christian and she uses probability to suggest I can provide you equations to show you the probability of water turning into wine or the Red Sea parting or all the miracles. I, I'm She's a kind of genius and she's able to come up with physics equations to show you because in an infinite universe, right? In an infinite universe, if anything that can happen will happen, it is sort of possible for water to turn into wine in an infinite universe. Uh, a tiny, tiny, tiny possibility, but it's possible. And therefore you can work out the possibility, right? So that I wrote that play and if it's a good play, but it's also an example of the return of the repressed because I think my dad, you know, wanted me to be a scientist and I couldn't do that, but I sort of repressed it in me and then it's coming out now in my fascination with science. And also, can I ask you a question, actually? Please. Another thing, which is, I think, it's a bit different for you because you're in, what would you, what is your area of study? What would you call it? So evolutionary consumer psychology. Okay, so that seems to me like a proper subject, right? I studied English and I'm a writer and I love my subject, but a tiny part of me, and I think all people who work in the arts think this, thinks proper cerebral work is being done elsewhere. Proper cerebral work is being done essentially in the sciences, right? Uh, and so I think that uh, my dad saying it's a waste of a brain is a bad thing to say. A part of me believes it. A part of me believes no, I'm gonna I, I should be doing physics. So, so I just spoke first on behalf of your late grandmother. Now I'm yeah. going to uh, address your late father you're ready and i'm yeah. going to cater to his point about it you know only science could be proper which he i disagree if you're going to address him he was a doctor a doctor because he's so, okay well there you go dr yeah. phd in biochemistry dr colin brian Badil. so get ready so yeah. earlier you were mentioning that in your outdated uh, manuscript for your dissertation you were using a post-structuralist and michel yeah. foucault and, and, and i go on and on so in the parasitic mind in my 2020 book yeah. i talk yeah. about parasitic ideas and idea pathogens of which the biggest one is postmodernism. that's the granddaddy of all parasitic ideas i agree i agree okay. with that but here's a way where we can still have you do finish your dissertation and it being properly scientific you ready and by yeah. the way you owe me a major, major yeah. uh, game at either Arsenal or Chelsea or Manchester City when yeah. I come next to England. And also a massive credit in the in the book that gets published as a result of this. There you go. So, yeah. so I think if you've never heard of this, I hope that this serves as an epiphany because I think it's it's it truly is an exciting field. So there is a field, David, called Darwinian literary criticism. Have you heard no. of that? No. So basically, what you're doing there is you're arguing. So rather than doing a literary critical you know endeavor using a marxist lens or a postmodernist lens or a yeah. feminist lens you yeah. use actually the proper scientific lens which is that literature moves us and the fact that we're able to you know link and understand some ancient greek poem in exactly the way if it were being said today is because yeah. there are a few underlying universal themes in literature that are exactly exactly catering to our shared biological heritage so i can yeah. study victorian sexuality as a matter of fact there's a book called madam 
bovaries ovaries where right. where they literally look at all of these classic literary themes at, using a darwinian lens so here comes soon to be dr bedil the the young one the david one where he applies a very formal evolutionary biological and evolutionary psychological approach to studying whichever literary genre he wants. Now your dad is happy because you are, quote, applying science. What do you think I'm about science. that? That's brilliant. Well, thank you, Gad. That's like sorted out an enormous amount of psychological issues for me in one go. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you one, uh, what's very interesting about it, really interesting about it, is I mentioned in passing that the way that I looked at literature was historicist primarily. Uh, and to get over the fact that you're right, it's got far too much postmodernism in it because it was written in the 80s and I was young. But there's something I still believe in, uh, but with a twist now, depending on what you've said, which is that uh, history does contextualise art. Uh, and I remember when I first came upon this idea, I was very excited by it, partly because I think because of my dad, again, a part of me doesn't want to be totally free floating intellectually about art. I want to feel that there's something concrete. And I remember I had a teacher, a really brilliant teacher, who was basically a historian called Lisa Jardine. And I went to see Lisa lecture, and she was lecturing about the Fairy Queen, uh, which is by Spencer. And it was a massive poem written at the start of Elizabeth's first reign. And she said, why is virginity so important in this poem? And her point was, up to that point, people writing courtly poetry would have premised valour and heroism as their main objective for their heroes, because that's what their monarchs were doing. They were going off to fight wars and crusades. And then suddenly they had a female monarch. What's her version of heroism at that point in time in 1550? Interesting. It's, it's chastity. That's a heroic thing for a, a female monarch to do. And I remember sitting there thinking, suddenly literature has a reality. It's not just people saying, oh, I like this poem or I don't like this poem. It's that that felt to me like intellectually concrete. So I became very historicist in the way that I looked at literature. And I think I wrote some quite interesting things, actually, from that point of view. But I I would have changed now a bit to almost entirely what you have just said, except I, I don't know that I would put a Darwinian lens on it, which is I do believe now more in the eternality of human experience. Right. So as I've moved away politically to some extent, I used to be very left wing. I now think of myself as purely free floating politically. Uh, like I don't have a political home at all. Uh, I think, in fact, having a political home in your head as a brand, it just squashes original independent thought. Uh, and as part of that, I think that um, assuming that everything is entirely dependent on your immediate historical context, has that slightly Marxist element to it, which I no longer completely... I, still, I think history is incredibly important, but not in that way that there is nothing that can exist without the confines of your immediate historical circumstance. That's a very kind of Marxist idea. Now I think, no, you're right. There's something that in eternal humanity that means that when you read Shakespeare or when you read Sophocles, there is history and there is also something that binds us. And so in, 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 in several of my early books in evolutionary psychology, I have chapters which I titled, I titled cultural products as fossils of the human mind. And so right. my, my argument there is that if you're a paleontologist and you want to study the phylogenetic history of a species, then your currency 
are the fossil remains and the skeletal remains. And I can say very precise things about the mating behavior of a animal that has now been extinct for 65 plus million years based on those fossil remains. On the other hand, when it comes to the human mind, it doesn't fossilize, it's organic. But what I argue is the cultural products that human minds leave behind are fossils. And so I could study the ancient Greek poem, I could study the song lyric, or I could study the troubadour, uh, I could study movie themes, screenplays, or plays in general, and I can study all of those things informed by the evolutionary lens because it will say some profound things about our shared biological heritage. So I think, I mean, there are now a growing number of liter literary critics that are using Darwinian theory, but it is still a very small field. So again, not to, again, channel your grandmother, there are ways by which you can so easily write something innovative about a particular set of, you know, literary period, be it Victorian or other, where you incorporate the Darwinian lens and boy, would you take off the originality element because so few literary critics do use that lens. Right. I mean, what the, this is to move it slightly away from like, like helping me rewrite my PhD, but what occurred to me when you were speaking is, is music. Yes, is, because of course you know people say all art aspires to the condition of music but one reason for that is that music is timeless uh you know uh shakespeare i think is also timeless but he's also not timeless like a lot of what shakespeare's writing is to do with what's going on in tudor time in renaissance times right uh whereas we the abstract way in which we can be moved by music from almost any period i mean as it happens I like music from the 1970s, which is probably why, because I was growing up then. But give me, give me I, some groups quickly. Well, I, actually, I've I've come back round to really liking prog rock. So I, I having thought, well, that's not cool for ages. I now thought, what am I talking about? Who cares what's cool? So I like Genesis and okay. uh, Jethro Tull and Pink Floyd. But I also like singer songwriters, including Canadian singer songwriters, particularly Joni Mitchell and Neil Young. Okay, uh, so I'm very big fans of them. Uh, so, but I, you know, sometimes I sit down and listen to, you know, Tchaikovsky or Bach, Bach particularly, and find myself incredibly moved by it in in a way that clearly you cannot historicize because it it doesn't have an obvious meaning that you can do that to that thing I said about the Fairy Queen, which I like intellectually, but you can't do that with Bach. You can't say exactly why the history has created this particular sound and why it moves you now 400 years later. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, by the way, there is a field called evolutionary musicology. Yes, there is. <laughs> of course there is. By the way, one of the ideas that I'm thinking for my next book, uh, I'm not sure if, I'm, if I've sold myself on the idea, is to write a book demonstrating that the amount of new insights that could be gleaned from applying the evolutionary lens in fields that you wouldn't typically expect it to be present in. So what does evolutionary architecture look like or evolutionary yeah. musicology or evolutionary literary criticism? I mean, I touched on this in some of my previous books, but I, I thought I would do a, an entire book where every chapter would be evolution and fill in the blank of a different discipline. I think that might work well. What what do you what's, what are your first thoughts about such a project? Well, well uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't realize you were quite so evolutionary uh like like and I, I think it is the case as far as i can make out that almost any field of study or endeavor can be examined in a darwinian way right. that seems to be the case 
because as we said earlier on, everything is marketing uh, and everything is marketing can obviously have a reproductive basis yes. uh, or, or a social status increasing basis, which is in terms of what you said earlier, a species drift or whatever the word is. I don't know if that's the right expression, but you know what I mean? Or yeah, yeah. What word do you use for something that was at an original basis and then becomes something else? Oh, oh uh, exaptation. Exaptation. Exaptation instead of heard... adaptation. Yes. Yes, I've heard of that because <laughs> this is going to seem a strange thing uh, to mention. But I'm the book I'm writing at the moment is based on a show I did about my parents uh, and uh, my mum. It's it's very much about my mother, who uh, one of the things in her life that was the defining thing in her life was that she had an affair with a golfing memorabilia salesman uh, and then turned our lives over to golf. She became totally obsessed with golf and everything in our house was golf and golfing based. And the comedy of it was that somehow my dad didn't notice that this meant she was having an affair with the golfing memorabilia salesman. But I use, and it's good that you've told me because I think I use species drift and I should use acceptation. I use the example of that in the middle of this book to say I don't believe that my mother was really that interested in golf. But what happened was her desire, which is the kind of evolutionary desire, I guess, to be with this guy was so strong that it moved her to a position whereby she was obsessed with golf, which doesn't really make sense because from his point of view, she just became a rival in the market <laughs> of golfing memorabilia stuff, right? And as far as I know, he was always a bit annoyed about it, but she couldn't stop herself because something in her was being pushed to being... To proving that she did was your more... parents separate? Or... They did for a bit, and then they got back together again. Okay, yeah. so she left the golf guy and went back. No, to... She never. Well, she was just having an affair with the golf guy. They were never actually together. But she was a part of, because my mother was uh, the key thing, and this is more how I think, and not so Darwinian, maybe in terms. Of, I'm fascinated by human psychology, and I don't always apply. I mean, you might have a Darwinian version of this, but I think the reason my mum was like that is she was a refugee. Her life in Germany, had Hitler never existed, would have been very glamorous. She was from a very wealthy background. They owned a brick factory in a place called Königsberg. Uh, I've actually been there. It's called Kaliningrad now. And they had servants. And she would have had probably quite a glittering marriage. She, all that went. And she, she ended up with my working class Welsh dad, who was quite angry. But I think at some level... She always imagined this glamorous life that she would have had. And the nearest thing she could find in suburban London in 1973 was this kind of golf guy. Right? And, and her, so your dad forgave her and then they lived out their life together? No, uh, my dad just never talked about it. Okay, well, but that itself is, is incredibly shocking. So let me give you some stats that might uh, either surprise you or not. Let's see. When a man cheats on a woman, yeah. it doesn't at all it mean that the relationship will end. I think if, if I'm getting the number, I might get the numbers slightly off. It's about a 30% chance that the marriage will dissolve when a man cheats on a woman. When a woman cheats on a man, it almost, and this is cross-cultural, it almost guarantees it. It's 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 roughly in the 90% range, right? So your dad and your mom fell in the 10% anomaly. Now, the reason from an evolutionary perspective- They, they were quite anomalous in lots of ways. There you go. So, yeah. but the, the reason why it is an unforgivable act is because of a basic Darwinian mechanism of paternity uncertainty. So okay. men have evolved the emotional, cognitive, and behavioral systems to be very unforgiving of these kinds of dalliances because we're a biparental species and I don't want to go around raising the sexy gardener's son. And yeah. therefore, you cheat on me, we're done. And so it's quite incredible that your dad 
But it's interesting. That. Well, as I say, he never really admitted it to himself. Everyone <laughs> else knew, including the children. My dad, who was not an open man emotionally, never really admitted, I think, that my mum was doing that. And the key element in my dad's life, to be honest, was that he was a very lazy man. Like he was, he hated any form of aggravation, uh, any form of sort of emotional journeying. And for him, it was just easier to stay with my mum. I should say he was in no way a sort of beta male, however. He was by far the largest figure in our house. He was kind of a big, strong, quite angry man, but he just couldn't be fucked, I think. I did he he did briefly, when they were separated, and I was a bit older, have a relationship with a woman. Uh, he he. By that time, he'd been made redundant. He worked in an antiques market, and I said, "Who is it?" And he went, "Oh, she's a Macedonian. It's aggravation." And that's all I knew about her. So, <laughs> and then he got back with my mum because he couldn't be bothered, really. So it was more that. But you're, that that is very interesting. How much more time have we got? Because there's something I wanted to ask you. Oh, uh, as long as you want. Do you want to go for another fifteen minutes? Yeah, sort of fifteen minutes. Yeah, that's cool. Okay. Uh, I mean, I just just in terms of the Jews don't count thing. Sure. So one of the key elements of Jews don't count, which you haven't read, but I'd be really interested to see what you think when you do read it, uh, is that I talk about the ways in which the reasons why Jews are not in this kind of what I call a sacred circle right. of minorities that are considered oppressed enough for progressives to ally with them. The Jewish allyship is not really a thing. Uh, and this is to do with the fact that, you know, Jews are the only minority that have got this weird dual status in the imagination, in, in the racist imagination, which is that, like all minorities, they're seen as kind of low status, as thieving or, or lying or whatever. But they also, Jews have this one other thing, which is we are high status. We are powerful and rich and in control of the world. And that excludes us from that. And the other thing that excludes us, and this is the question I want to ask you, is that Jews are generally seen as white. And but this is a particularly big thing, I would say, in the modern binary where white is the apogee of everything bad. Now, my position is that Jews are not straightforward. Well, obviously, there are Jews of colour, which I want to come to you about anyway. But also, no Jew is exactly white because Jews are constantly being classed as non-white by right. the Nazis or whoever it might be. But then, of course, there's someone like you who is a Lebanese Jew, right? Uh, and I don't know whether what, what you consider yourself to be, but I would say that the, the failure of progressives to think of you as, you know, not just any other white bloke, right, is part of the problem. I don't know how, how you feel. Oh, no. Listen, uh, David, I have used that exact argument against all the wokesters because, so I always tell them, that I outrank all of you in victimology poker, right? Yeah. So, so for example, recently, I don't know if you heard the, the the problems that are happening with the president of Harvard, Claudine Gay. Of course I did. Yeah. Right. And so the president of the NAACP had come out saying, oh, you know, these accusations against her are a form of white supremacy. She's a brilliant academic and so on. So I, re re you know, offered a rebuttal on Twitter, which went completely viral, where I offered you know, rebuttals to each of his points. And at the end, to your point, I said, you know, I would be very careful about accusing me of white supremacy because I am a childhood war refugee of color, an Arabic speaking Jew. So I outrank you in victimology poker. So be careful. Well, guess what? I do it in a kind of diabolical way, yes. right? I'm Right. But guess what? It works, David, because in their completely warped, parasitized minds, you know, if I'm a greater victim, therefore, my arguments are correct. It's not the veracity of the argument that matters. 
but I'm you if you say something against Islam, that's bad because you know you're an Ashkenazi. But if I say something against Islam, you know, my words are words of color, therefore they simply carry more weight. It's insane, but that's the world we live in. Well, it's very interesting that. So one of the things I try and explain to people, uh, I actually did a big interview with Haretz uh, just now, which went very viral. Um, and uh, they slightly misquoted me because uh, the headline says Jews are a glitch in the matrix. And I think this was a translation thing, because what I what I actually said was Jews are a glitch in the binary. Uh, I might have said in the matrix of the binary. But what I mean is that that power relationship, which is often about you know whiteness or non-whiteness, is one of the many ways in which Jews fuck up the uh, victimizer victimized binary that rules thinking in general. And one of the ways in which we fuck it up is that it's impossible a lot of the time to say exactly what the whiteness or otherwise of Jews is. You're a brilliant example of that. Yeah, you know, exactly. You're, you're very, very difficult to classify, right? In terms exactly. of your what, but you know what that does a lot of the time. I mean, it may work for you, and I, you, that devilishness, I absolutely understand it. But also, I think it frustrates and annoys those who just want the binary to be straightforward. And it's another reason why anti-Semitism happens. I mean, I'm not blaming you. I think it's a good thing. It's a very good thing to subvert those people. But I think you'll find. In my heart of hearts, if you ask me, you know, what's happening now and what this book is about, that it's a cry for complexity. That right. Jews essentially represent complexity in understanding the world. And the the fact that you've just listed about five categories that are all dancing with each other, like some kind of subatomic particle <laughs> that you can't locate, that frustrates people who want the world to be simple. Indeed. And by the way, your book... When did it come out? Jews don't count. It came out in 2021. Start of okay, 2021. So I mean, boy, is it even more relevant after yeah. the reaction of October post October 7th, right? Yeah. No, obviously it is. I mean, actually, in the book, when you read it, you'll see uh, I I have my position on Israel is fairly narrow. So I, I have a very short chapter on Israel. And the reason I have a short chapter on Israel, which is going to be interesting for you as a as a Lebanese Jew, is that I'm saying right what I tend to uh, tend to get up to the point that I wrote the book, and still afterwards, when I talk about anti-Semitism is, what about Israel? What about Palestine? And my answer to that is, you know, I'm talking about a centuries-old racism here, a, like something that's really complex and really old. Do not reduce it to stuff that's happening in the Middle East and has only been going on for a few years, really. Uh, oh, I completely what, agree with that. And that's what progressives would do. Like, they think you can upend or subvert any conversation about anti-Semitism just by saying, what about Palestine? And my position is, that's actually not what I'm talking about. And it's reductive for you to do that. And also no one, no progressive person would go up to a, you know, a British Chinese person uh, talking about, you know, how they might be experiencing some racism in Britain and say, well, firstly, I want you to talk about the Chinese state and what they're doing to the Uyghurs before I allow you into the conversation. Right. That just right. doesn't happen. Right. But you, you, one of the things that frustrates me to no end uh, about the creation of modern day Israel in 1948 is that it has allowed a whole panoply of Jew haters to change the justification of their, you know, it, you know, just visceral diabolical Jew hatred and say, oh no, all of my hatred is related to Zionism. I love the damn Jews. It's just the Zionists that I hate. And I, I mean, that. again, demonstrably, that is such a, such a God. I mean, just look at what Hamas says. I mean, and of course, as an Arabic speaker, I can show you an endless litany of 
you know, speeches that they give to their people at the mosque where they never utter a single time anything about land. As a matter of fact, they often say, it doesn't matter if we got back everything from the river to the sea, Jews must be eradicated. And so it really frustrates me when Westerners say, oh no, everything that you're saying in terms of global Jew hatred today stems from Israel. Nothing could be further from the truth. Well, no, it's, yeah. So before all this happened, uh, this, this copy of my book is actually the American copy. And I'd already added... Uh, a bit more. Put, put it up so people can see the, the okay, whole sorry. thing. Uh, then I wanted to about Israel because I wanted to take in that point specifically. And I was I, I use an example, which is the in 2019, where there was an Israel-Gaza conflict, uh, now forgotten about, but there was. Uh, there were quite a lot of marches in London. And there was a march in Hyde Park. And there were two things about it that were notable. Uh, number one, there was a, a placard uh, that had a picture of Jesus on it. Uh, and it had a picture of Jesus on it on the cross, and it said, don't let them do it again. So if you want to separate anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, there it is. Because Israel, the state of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu was not around in AD 33, you know, cheering for Team Barabbas. That was not happening. Uh, and as a result, it's clear that them means the eternal Jew. And that's how you can actually set people say, oh, can't tell the difference between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. Yes, you can, because the eternal trope will only be applied to Jews. And there's something else, which is that um, uh, an activist, a guy called Tariq Ali, at that thing, he said something which is very common and relates to what you just said. And I get it all the time, which is he just said, if the occupation ends, you know, and the, and the brutality ends, anti-Semitism will fade away. So I don't know if, if Tariq had forgotten, but... In 1948, when the state of was set up, there had been a fairly big global anti-Semitic event of, like a few years before that, which was not related to conflict in the Middle East. So it really, uh, really offends me the notion that anti-Semitism, this unbelievably persistent form of persecution and racism, is just about what's happened in this. In Obviously, it's re it is driven now in the way you're talking about. But it is also very, very reductive to imagine that that's all there is. By the way, speaking speaking of uh, the event that happened in the 30s and 40s, the Grand Mufti of, of Jerusalem was uh, going on little love getaways with Adolf Hitler, where they were where he, where the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem was saying, uh, you know, once we're done with the Jewish problem in, in, in Europe, you know, don't worry, I'll take care of the Jews in the Middle East. And they were super simpatico with this grand sort of final solution, bringing the final solution to the Middle East. This is well before the creation of modern day Israel. So even historically, it just doesn't add up. But yet it, it's it's almost impenetrable to reason. To I mean, I've tried to engage some of these folks. The I mean, one quick point, and then I'll, I'll see the floor to you, and then we'll wrap it up soon. T maybe talk about some of your future projects coming up. I, I we escaped the Lebanese uh, civil war. I mean, under imminent threat of execution. I could tell you stories. That to do with being Jewish, by the way, was your in imminent threat of execution to do with your Jewishness, or was it just political? No, I mean, to, to be being Jewish, there was this, there was a, a family, a couple of streets down from, I mean, a couple of houses down from us that was rounded and killed, right? Because what happens in, in Lebanon, at, at least at the start of the civil war, is there would be these random roadblock uh, checks manned by militia. 
and then you would be asked to show your card. In, in Arabic, you say hawiye, which is like an internal ID card, which is the, the most prominent thing on that card is your religion. The Jews were referred to as Israeli, which means Israelite. It's, it wasn't even Yehudi, which is Jew. So you, you lost your Lebanese identity. You were just an Israelite. Now, there weren't going to be many roadblocks if you were stopped that you were going to get out of without having a bullet in your head. So there was an endless number of ways that you were going to die in the Lebanese civil war, some of which had nothing to do with being Jewish, but a lot of it with it being right. Jewish. By the way, my parents were subsequently kidnapped by Fatah, a Palestinian militia group, and some really bad things happened there. So no, it was absolutely, I mean, there are there are no Jews left in Lebanon. It's not because of, of, of magic, right? And so right. it was completely related to, to, to being uh, Jewish. The, the anti-Semitism, yeah. even in progressive Lebanon, was incredible. But my point is that for all of the Jew hatred that I experienced as a kid growing up in Lebanon, it still left me shocked to see the level of Jew hatred I have seen since October 7 and coming from completely different uh, sides. So I have the progressive academic types, right, who, who, who went to the Near East Studies programs, you know, Jews are the occupiers. They're sending me hate mail. I'm getting the from the right side, the Jews won't replace us guys sending me the hate mail. And of course, I'm getting the usual Islamic guys. So the Jew right. hatred now is coming from every direction, whereas at least when I was in Lebanon, it was just good old-fashioned Islamic Middle East-based Jew hatred. But now I'm getting it from everywhere. So it's unbelievable. Well, so, do so, so do I get it. It's, so do I. Uh, I mean, all the time. I mean, you know, I can turn off social media. Uh, so which is where it resides in, in a big way. But also, you know, it's there also in IRL it's there on the streets at the moment and it's there uh you know in all sorts of ways and it's really extreme at the moment uh, and you're right there is that sort of weird 360 degree nature of it there's no uh, but if, if when you read Jews don't count I so so people like partly what I talk about in that is what I don't talk about it, but this is what I'm sort of talking about, which is a sort of dynamic because people say, oh, is it, you know, you're trying to say it's worse from progressives than from the far right. No, I'm saying the whole thing is in a dance, a very dysfunctional dance. Right. Because, you know, you're there, you progressive, supposedly operating this kind of protective sanctuary space for minorities against the far right. If you choose to neglect Jews within that and aggressively neglect Jews within that, what does that do in terms of opening up the possibility of violence against them, which, as you say, can also come from other directions as well? And then the violence somehow is overlooked or considered understandable at this time. And then you're in a very, very dysfunctional space, I think. Let's add that on hopefully a slightly more positive, yeah. less dire note. Are there yeah. any projects that you're currently working on that you'd like to use this opportunity to plug? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've got this memoir I'm writing, uh, which is going to come out next year. I'm recording. I'm still doing stand-up comedy, so I shall be recording. I've done t uh, three shows in the last 10 years. I'm recording them all for TV, for Sky Arts. And if any British people are listening to this, I will be recording them at the Royal Court, uh, which is a really great theatre in March. And you can come and watch them being recorded. Uh, uh, but I think the thing that you will be most interested in as a Darwinian, I didn't really understand how Darwinian you are, is so these small books that I write, they're kind of polemical books. Uh, yeah, uh, people want me to write another one about Jews, but I don't think I'm going to do that just because I want to write about something different. So the one I'm going to write, I think, is about maleness. Uh, because uh, I've noticed through reading quite a lot of feminist books, 
that uh, there is no man really writing about male desire. Uh, no sort of interesting man. I don't mean kind of Andrew Tate or whatever. I mean, no sort of interesting, like a, a friend of mine called Kathleen Moran, who's a really great writer and she's a feminist in this country, wrote a book called What About Men, which I'm actually in. She interviewed me for it. But when reading it, I thought this is really interesting, but it's really weird that a book called What About Men is not being written by a man. Uh, and so I want to write about something which I, <laughs> I, I think will get me to a lot of trouble, which is... I am of the belief that you can talk about heterosexual male desire without that necessarily being about reducing women. This is my central thesis, is that the assumption, as I read most feminist texts, is that the male gaze, which is what I may call this book, is always objectifying, always dehumanising, whatever. And I'm not saying it never is. Indeed, I'm not saying it isn't. But what I'm saying is that it's too simplistic to imagine that that's it. Uh, that indeed the way that sex works and the sex sexual gaze of men works is you can do that and it can be dehumanizing but in the next minute it can be something else and right. my so therefore the sort of sociology of this for want of a better word is i do not believe that there is a straightforward link between my desire for women which even at my age still exists and imagining that women cannot be presidents and judges and CEOs or whatever and fully rounded human beings, I think they obviously can be. And if that is the case, then something glitchy is happening, which, again, I'm interested in, in the assumption about male desire that I would like to speak about. And men generally are not allowed to do that. But to finish on a joke uh, of some of sorts is one thing about Jews don't count, which is also actually about a group imagined as powerful but uh, and too powerful and therefore speaking out is sort of problematic. Uh, Jews in general, having read that book, and this is slightly self-aggrandizing, but it's true, are grateful for this book, right? Jews come up to me or write to me all the time, say, thank you for writing Jews Don't Count. If I write a book that is very, very deeply honest about male desire, men will not thank me for it. <laughs> <laughs> I think men will say you shouldn't have written that and that hasn't helped at all. But, but well, still... we'll we'll have you back when you write that book. Uh, hopefully, you'll make a return on the show. Uh, I, I, I want to be mindful of your time. Go get Jews Don't Count. Go check him out in his next stand-up comedy tour. Get this the God Desire, David. What a thrill it is to to have met you. Hopefully, we can stay in touch. We didn't get a chance to talk about soccer. Maybe we'll do it next time around. Stay we'll on the line so we can say goodbye. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you. Cheers.